Isaiah 58, 6-12 Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of the wicked, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share the bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then you shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Welcome into January 24, 2021. We are starting a very brief series, three-week series. It's entitled The Offer of Christianity. And each week, we're going to briefly examine one-word topics. So justice, hope, morality. Uh, Just like you, I've been hearing those words, especially this past year. Um, We are a culture who is demanding and crying out for justice. The addressment and the correction of injustice. Uh, We're a culture longing for something, hope that's going to be realized and not just idealized pipe dreams and ideas. Uh, We're a culture that is invoking these phrases, moral obligation and moral duties and moral absolutes without really wanting to ground them in anything that smells like divinity or absolutes. So so when I, I titled it The Offer of Christianity, I do think that Christianity is offering those things, justice, hope, morality. and uh, But at the very same time, uh, a secular world is offering those very same things uh, as self-evident human things. And God is probably uh, superfluous, and uh, you can have that kind of goodness without the God, right? You can have all of the good taste without the God calories. And so I, I wanted to show how these beautiful ideas uh, find their fullest expression in Christianity through Christ himself. Uh, by themselves, they really deserve very long treatments. Uh, my notes <laughs> deserve probably uh, multiple series on each one. <laughs> but look, judge them as a 25-28 minute treatment. Don't judge them as exhaustive. Okay. So let's talk about justice. Uh, we, what we heard this morning from Isaiah 58, gorgeous, thrilling, uh, haunting, beautiful words from Isaiah. Uh, take the weights from those who are oppressed. Beautiful. Uh, 
the racially different immigrant find them a home? Whoa, this, this is exciting movement. Uh, the warming and filling of a stomach of someone who just wants real food to taste great. Those who are exposed and getting looks of shame have them covered up and protected the marginalized the vulnerable so if you if you read Isaiah 58 and you say that kind of sounds like a bleeding heart to me well uh, you're going to have to bring that up with God that is the heart of God Jesus actually teaches these late parts of Isaiah quite a bit in the New Testament Luke 4 and Matthew 11, Matthew 25, subject of his first sermon. Um, these, these songs and passages at the end of Isaiah are called the servant songs. And what they do is they look ahead and point to the servant of the Lord who is going to come and A, embody this, okay, and, for, and B, he's going to energize and move all things towards these beautiful endings. So all of the New Testament identifies Jesus as the man that Isaiah is talking about, who's going to bring about these things. That's the guy, the New Testament says. If you look at him, he's going to be the one chasing after this to-do, the to-do list of God. Now, I think what's surprising to me when I study this, if you study this, um, if any, if it's anybody with wealth and or privilege, um, is that Jesus and Isaiah will not get off the subject of the poor. Over and over, the to-do list of God has the poor front and center, on the top of the list. Uh, Like, there will be good news, and it will be given. Good things are in store for the poor. Now, um, that makes people like us a little bit uncomfortable, because I think... I think we'd love to make the poor part of our checklist. Uh, I think a part of the list of the bills we pay, um, among all the other bills we have to pay, but to put them front and center and attach all of our personhood or persons and resources to their welfare, uh, that's going to begin to make us feel a little shifty and a little uncomfortable. Uh, One of the things I have to do very quickly, and I... I have to connect the plight of the poor to justice. And then I have to connect the poor to yourself. Um, so I, I, I want to I connect um, justice to you. Okay, common question. Why should Christians be consistently, deeply, emotionally, have emotional entanglement with and for the poor. Like, be very, very involved. There's this uh, really strange biblical idea, and it's going to sound bizarre to American ears, I understand, but it's called the Year of Jubilee. Isaiah uh, 61 talks of Jesus as the year of Jubilee, um, but it really starts in Leviticus 25, and um, the year of Jubilee is every 50 years across Israel, across the country, um, every single outstanding debt is forgiven. So not just student loans. Two, if you're a slave 
or an indentured slave, like you sold yourself um, to make ends meet as a slave. Um, uh, if you're a slave or indentured, uh, you are 100% legally freed. You cannot be kept. Um, three, all real estate is returned and deeded back to original owners. Now, now what that means is you might remember the 12 tribes of Israel had a land allotment. They were given tracts of land. And every tribe, of course, had their own, uh, that broken down into families. And so at, in a year of Jubilee, the 50th year, all real estate is returned. Now, just like every other economy and every storyline in humanity, some families over 50 years, you do better and some do worse. And some fall on unpredictable tragedies and hard times. Some of it is mismanaged. Some of it is spent um, and squandered. Um, but, but, but whatever the reason is, after every 50 years, there's a reset. Um, think of the massive economic upheaval in that 50th year. Uh, but think of it another way. Uh, during an average lifespan of a person, individual, at least once, at least once, everybody is going to get a reset. A clean slate. Economically, holistically, as it pertains to your resources, even your status, you get a reset. Now, some of you <laughs> have cold sweats thinking about this as an American. All right, Americans will get really fidgety reading Leviticus 25 because it might even sound worse than socialism to you. But but God is revealing something to his people, his kingdom, the way that he operates. And it's this, is God is saying, I really do own all of the wealth. I really do own the land. I really do own all of the monies. Okay, um, some of you have known this. It, uh, our church plant's been around for almost five years, and um, we have had so many people involved in the different elements of worship. All right? Uh, so w we have had many of you all over the spectrum uh, pray for our offering. It happened today. And... and, and I'm making this stat up, but but probably 85% of the time that I have heard in these prayers over the last five years is this phrase is, God, everything that we have is yours. So many of you have prayed that prayer, that truth. You've been praying that truth for the five years that I've known you. And in the year of Jubilee, God is saying this. It's mine, and, and, I don't want permanent, generational, ongoing, systemic poverty in my country. Nope, not in my kingdom. I don't care about the economic upheaval. I do care about the poor, though. I do care about the poor, though. Okay, when Jesus comes along and is called the year of Jubilee, it means that his entire person is committed to what? Wiping things clean, taking off burden, eradicating disease, drying 
tears pulling up the discouraged, covering the shamed, deleting flaws, stopping, stopping injustice, ridding people of gnawing hunger, stopping suffering, preventing anguish. See, that's the end of Jesus' plan. And then he's baked it in in all kinds of commands and initiatives and guidelines for his people so that he wants them to care about those things before he completely does it at the end of days. And the year of Jubilee is one little tiny example. Okay, that connects us. It connects justice to God's heart and his plan. He's about some justice now. You can see it just from that little tiny example. Now I'm going to do this. I'm going to connect justice to you. Um, now this is where we're going to feel a little uncomfortable. And so there's, that's a trigger warning for you. Um, you can leave the room, shut your laptop if you don't want to feel uncomfortable. Um, Isaiah says this in verse 6 of Isaiah 58. He says, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Okay? Plainly, Isaiah is describing justice. Oh. Stop wicked actions against the vulnerable, the oppressed. Okay? Undo it. Break the cycle. Break the unfair harnesses. That's a good thing. Let's get everybody involved. That's that's justice. Verse 6. That's justice. And then he says this in verse 7, and he describes it a little bit more uh, individually, personally. Um, He said, you know, is it not, so he's kind of continuing, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? See the naked and cover them and don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now, he puts it a little differently, a few verses down in verse 10. Uh, it's even more invested. He says, you know, uh, make yourself the payment all of your life, not just your cash. Pour yourself out. Pour out you. Spend you. Uh, he says that. Okay, prepare for the discomfort. I said it was coming. Some people will say this. Okay, cool. Verse 6 is so pro-justice. I love that. Me too. I am so into justice too. Uh, but uh, verse seven, um, that's that's probably a little bit more like charity. Like that's charitable giving, charitable donations, communal compassion. And I, I, look, 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 look. I'm so pro charity too. We should totally be charitable to the poor people. But it's kind of helpful, possibly, for us to separate those two. Okay. Um, uh, because as an American who believes in private ownership, uh, charity isn't really required here in America. It's very optional. Um, now, justice is not optional. Justice is not optional, but charity is optional. And so what we do when we look at verse 6 and 7 is we push our American values on verses 6 and 7. And we probably would say, now, isn't that helpful for all of us that we separated those into those two issues into two different categories? Um, it, it's, it would be like saying this, um, like systemic racism is a justice issue and poverty is a charitable issue. 
but it does have this result. Um, you're not a big meanie if you decide not to help out with the food drive. You're not a big meanie. Um, why? It's optional. If you want to be generous, cool, that's cool. If not, maybe later, man. Okay, that's all right. But we're going to have to cancel you if you think minorities and people of color are just whining. See, that, that, that's not optional. That's justice. Correcting injustice. So justice, even in our culture, even in our society, in this modern moment, justice really isn't an option. Injustice is absolutely unacceptable. But I want you to see what God, Isaiah is saying. God is saying. If you don't feed the hungry, you are involved in major injustice. You are contributing to anti-justice. You are really not for justice, regardless of what you post and repost on the Twitter gram. So, so why do most Americans, Christian, non-Christian alike, think like that? Look, I don't owe the poor anything. I'm not indebted to the poor. That They have no rightful claim on any of my resources. Look, look, you should just be happy. I give anything to them. If I contribute, awesome. If I don't, fine. But don't you dare call me unjust, buddy. It's charity. Charity is my independent thinking zone. I do what I want with what is mine. Are you uncomfortable yet? It's going to get a little worse before it gets better. Um, okay, the year of Jubilee, yes, shows us that God owns the wealth of his own kingdom. But check this out. Check out the last phrase of verse 7 in Isaiah 58. He says, is it not to share, talking about justice, is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? See the naked and cover them? Here's this last phrase. And don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now, we all think of our flesh and blood as family, our closest uh, domestic squad. In verse 7, the hungry, the poor wanderer, and the uncovered, they are described as your flesh and your blood. God is saying the poor wanderer is your brother and your daughter and your cousin, your peeps. E even the ESV translates poor wanderer as homeless. And it's okay, but it's, it, but it's not correct of, where, of how it's used elsewhere. Poor wanderer means an impoverished person of another race. It's like an alien, a stranger. That's how it's used elsewhere. When you turn away from the strange, struggling person of another race in your city and community, God looks at it and says, oh, oh, you're, you're ignoring your family. You just cold-shouldered your mom. You just cold-shouldered your dad. 
This is what is explosive and beautiful about God's opinion, is the poor person of another race is your flesh and blood. Every human is de facto an image bearer of God himself. See the connection there. Okay, here's the point. If everything I've said is biblically true, you are responsible for the needs, the welfare, the flourishing, the healing of the poor. (laughs) They don't owe you. You owe them. In fact, some of us are wildly behind in our payments. Now, this isn't just sin, though it is. It's injustice. Now I've connected justice to you. Look, we have a lot. We have much. We are lo- we are filthy, stinking rich. And in our circles, I think in our community, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say this everywhere, but in our community, um, we generally think this, look, it is the care, it is my care, it is my dedication, it is my discipline, it is my decision paths, it is the application of my smarts, it is my delayed gratification, it is the endurance through obstacles and boredom, it, it, I, have resulted what in what stability wealth and a measure of security whether you'd say this out loud or not or you'd say it this way or not or say it in front of people or in polite a company is what we really think in our circles my circles in our community we think the re- the pretty much the reason I'm rich is pretty much me and to a degree in some way I think you do have a point because if you didn't work hard, you wouldn't have it. Okay. But that's only a little, little tiny reason. It's a little fraction of the pie. It's only a little reason for your success. Look, if you, if you were born not in the last 100 years, say if you were born in the 4th century, if you were born in Senegal and Cambodia or the, the hinterlands, the Norselands, or in, in, in Mayan territory and times. If you were just born in a different time. If you were born with different um, nutrition and, and different medical care and different vitamins and, and different cultural values, you would not be rich. Look, the largest reason that you are rich and I am rich, if we're being historically and academically honest, the largest reason we're rich is that it had zero to do reason to do with us. It's either random or it's a gift from God and I'm going to opt for gift from God. That's why you're set up. That's why you're loaded. That's why you're sitting pretty and comfortable. It's why I am. It's a gift from God. 
And if all of our assets and money is predicated upon the over, overwhelming setup and gift from God, if that's true, is justice to the poor really just like a take-it-or-leave-it proposition? Is charity optional? Is it completely at your whim and discretion? If we approach it that way, then what? I've fooled myself. You've fooled yourself into thinking, oh, I've worked for it and it wasn't a gift from God. It's mine. And if you approach it that way, where charity is optional, I don't see that another person also carries and bears the image of God. And then what? What happens when you approach it that way? I am unjust. I will continue to perpetuate injustice wherever I go. Okay, I told you there would be some discomfort there. Um, now, most sermons, I would probably end here, and I, um, and I would have made you feel this soul discomfort, and we call that guilt, and I, I would have said, hey, look, you have so much, and I would pray, and I would end the Zoom call, and it's basically the equivalent to putting your nose in it, making you feel bad, and shouting at you to do better. Okay, that might... That might get you to shell out a few more bucks, volunteer just a little tad more for the poor people. But that doesn't make Christianity unique. You can do that without Christianity. Okay, let me land the plane for us. What is the offer of Christianity when it comes to justice? Um, there's a French philosopher, Jean-Francois Lettard. Um, I'd probably mispronounce that. Atheist, died in 1998. Brilliant man. And, and he identified something. He said the world has a huge problem with seeing the truth and the necessity of justice. Because it assumes that there is a meta-narrative a story above all the other stories that explains everything and asserts some sort of absolute why you should do it, right? It's like the movie, The Theory of Everything. It's a story that, that explains that something is good and right to do everywhere, like justice. Now, postmodernism is skeptical of any m- meta-narrative. Why? Because a meta-narrative asserts a dominant, more-knowing position. And the work of postmodernism, I, we, I get this from Simon Critchley, New School, New York City. Um, he says this, the work of, of postmodernism is to, this is his phrase, deprivilege all dominant voices. That's the work of postmodernism. And in doing so, it should elevate the voices that have been non-dominant, perhaps oppressed. But Critchley noted a problem. When you deprivilege all voices, no voice can have an authority. And the problem that Jean-Francois Leotard said is this, is we need a meta-narrative as an authority to do what is good and right, but all meta-narratives lead to domination and totalitizing and oppression, so we should probably reject them. Do you see the problem? Do you see the dilemma? 
He said all meta narratives, um, they number one, they shut down people who disagree with you, right? Because you're right. A meta narrative says you're right, and others are wrong. So you actually have to shut down people who are opposed to you too. He says it shuts down political dissent in favor of a utopian vision. And what he meant by that was saying this, is if we just got rid of these people and their crazy policies, and we put our policies in place, the world would be perfect, right? Whimsically utopian. But we know that it would not be perfect. Three, he said, meta-narratives engender a spirit of domination and arrogance. You don't have to listen to anybody. And so you can easily and gradually marginalize more and more people who disagree with you. And Leotard said this, show me a power of high absolute truth, a meta-narrative, right? A meta-narrative that is not totalizing. Um, I, I, I finished just recently a podcast done by the New York Times and Serial. Some of you have listened to it, Nice White Parents. And it's about a journalist who follows one school, 283 in Brooklyn, and follows one school, and it follows, uh, and, and what she does is she goes deep into his history um, from the 50s, but follows it probably around four to five years of close reporting. And what she sees is over, she herself is a white woman, and she sees this same story repeat itself over and over in the history of just one school, is that white parents will get involved, and they want to make a change, and what happens is they get what they want, and they think that they are helping, and they think they are being involved in some sort of social justice, but what happens is it does not fix the school, and it alienates and it hurts all kinds of people, and it never helps everybody. So she comes to this conclusion, it's, it's in the end of the podcast, and she says this, she goes, I don't have answers or solutions, but she said, it could, I know this, it could be made better if somehow, somehow the white parents would voluntarily give up power and their rights so that someone else would have it better. But it would mean giving up a place at the table. Um, and she said, now, I don't know if I see that happening. Uh, but she said, how, how, how could you get someone to voluntarily do that? <laughs> like, why would anyone surrender their privilege? Uh, why would anyone get less so that someone else can give more? And I'm going to do this voluntarily. It's not going to be coerced or mandated. So, so, so she sees this hint of a solution. But who in the world would do that? Well, Jesus, in Philippians 2, I'd encourage you to read it this next week. It describes in literal, real, beautiful phraseology and words, it describes him emptying himself of privilege. He deprivileges himself. It's a power that isn't totalizing. 
It's a power that doesn't shut out those hostile and in disagreement with him. See, the offer of Christianity is what it offers, right? Has a basis, a meta-narrative, a motivation for justice that doesn't destroy, make things worse, and become domineering. No. The heart of God is for the poor and he deprivileges himself for the full advantage of the poor and the other. Through who? Jesus. Jesus is justice. And that's what we long for. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we long for Jesus to come into places of injustice and repair them and make them right. Do this through him, by your spirit, in and through your people, we pray. Amen.